All right, Acts 13, starting in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in, in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as, a, as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a, in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning. 
So every time I come up here, I want to, uh, to have a t-shirt that says, pray for me. I'm preaching today, and I don't know how to stop. Um, so it is a long passage. We've got a lot to do, so we, let's get to work here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what I have to say is completely unimportant and inconsequential. But your words are the very words of life. So help us, Lord, to hear you speak to us today. Help me, Lord, to express your words, not mine. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last time I was here, um, we're in the book of Acts. I believe it was Acts chapter 8. And in that chapter, Paul had actually been, he was holding the garments of the men who stoned to death Stephen, who was preaching actually a same kind of a message of resurrection and hope, and actually a message of condemnation to, to the leaders of the people who had actually killed Jesus. So here we have a complete transformation of Paul, and probably uh, over a period of about 10 years. Uh, he, he went from being a Pharisee who was dedicated to destroying the church to a believer who is completely dedicated to building up the church. And it's a miracle. It's amazing to see what, what God did in the life of, of, um, of um, Paul. And we have in this passage here a really interesting ser um, sermon that gives us the nuggets of what's going to be uh, in the New Testament um, as we look in, in Paul's writings. Um, this passage is really a turning point in the book of Acts. Uh, because we have Paul uh, becoming prominent before we had Peter mostly being prominent. And so there's this turning or changing of characters as we look at Paul and his work and his commitment and the three missionary journeys that they take. So let's look really quick at um, Paul's sermon. And um, there's four parts to it, I believe. The first part is a need for repentance. Paul goes over the history of Israel, and if you look at the prophets, and if you look at the, the chronology and the narratives of historical books um, and, and the, the books of wisdom, I think the overarching theme that you're going to see is that we need to repent. We need to repent. The other arch, overarching theme that I think Paul is, is, is giving us here, or highlighting, is that he is a powerful God, able to save. I mean, just look at some of the things that God did in the nation of Israel. He took them out of Egypt. Egypt was a powerful country, and he just he took them out of Egypt, and he cared for them for that first generation. Of course, they all died. The first generation, most of them died, but he took them out, and he took that, the, the, the sons of that generation, and he made a, uh, he, he made a, a nation out of this, what you might call a, a what when they went into Israel, it was more like a motley crew. But when they went out, they came out, out of one of the most powerful nations in the earth at the time. And if you look at these seven nations that God cleared out of their way, I mean, just one, just the Hittites. I mean, they were a powerful empire. They covered parts of Turkey and Syria and, and Cyprus. And, and uh, some people say that they're as powerful as the Egyptians of that time. And God cleared them out. And he made a way for, for some of the tribes of Israel as they established themselves as a nation. 
And it talks about in the New Testament, in NIV, it talks about God have that, that mighty arm of God, the arm of God, the strength of God, the power of God. And so what Paul is doing is he's, re, he's giving us a resume of God and his power and his glory and his work in history and showing us also at the same time our need for repentance. Now, repentance is, is kind of a hard thing in our society. We don't, I don't think we even like the word. I mean, how many of you like, repent, <laughs> turn around. But it's such a, it's such a key part. And, and Paul, in his resume, he comes right up to the point of David. And David is a key figure in this passage and a key figure in the Bible. And he's an interesting figure. And at first, when you look at him, it's like, well, wait a minute. David is a man after God's own heart. That's how he's known in the scriptures. But as you read the narrative of 1 Samuel, you'll see that he's a man who committed adultery and murder. And if you look at the king before him, Saul, what was his crime? Well, he omitted to kill a king that he was told to wipe out, to kill. And that kind of strikes me, doesn't it? Doesn't it kind of strike you? I mean, the difference. But if you look closely at the passage, you're going to see that David's repentance was public and it was utterly sincere. I want to ask you, have you repented publicly? And have you repented sincerely? Some of us, I don't even know if we know what that means because we have grown up in a society where might makes right, where right is a relative thing, that we decide what is right. That's the way we've grown up. That's the way we've learned to think. We have in, in, in Acts, we've seen uh, that there's this constant obstruction of the gospel. The obstruction comes from all sorts of places. And then when there's not an obstruction of the gospel, there's a distortion of the gospel. And there's all sorts of distortions of the gospel today in the life that we live. How many gospels have you heard? I've heard the gospel of the Mormons. You ever had people show up at your door and they tell you how God once was, we uh, will be, or as God is, we will be, that we will all one day become gods? That's the gospel of the Mormons. And then there's the gospel of the Jehovah Witnesses who will tell you that Christ can't be God. There can only be one God. And that Christ was that Christ is the Son of God in the sense that God has a son, if that makes any sense in one way. But there's all sorts of gospels and distortions of the truth. There's, there's the, the gospel of self-help and self-righteousness. And if you really think about it, all these gospels are a gospel of self-righteousness. It's, it's us trying to come up with excuses and terms of why we're right. But you see, when we do that, we're also saying that God is wrong. Whenever you self-justify yourself, you're accusing God. And we've just spent a whole amount of time talking about and singing about how much God deserves our submission, how much God deserves our worship. And it was a beautiful thing, wasn't it? It was wonderful. 
And it's true. But you have to dig deep into your own heart to ask yourself, is that true of my being? Have I submitted all of myself to the only one true God who is all-powerful and all-righteous and just? You know, we, we really have a problem understanding just how sinful and how much deserving we are of God's judgment. I would say that if I were to do an inventory of us, most of us would say that we're, we're pretty good people. We, we haven't really committed anything all that bad. I mean, I've done some pretty bad things, but most of you, I'm sure, wouldn't fit into the category of some things that I've done. But then you miss the whole point of the holiness of God, don't, don't we? We miss the whole point that God is holy. And we miss the whole point. You know, some of us think that, that we, need to, we need to repent because we're going to die. You ever had that existential uh, moment where you realize life isn't forever? I'm not immune. One day I'm going to die. We're going, you know, I used to have this sermon where, where I would talk, I, would, I, would, I could bring people to this existential crisis. I'd say, you know, you're going to lose your home, and you're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your husband, and you're going to lose your wife. I'd go on and on, and one day I, I was preaching this, and, and this little child in the background, I heard this little, no, no. I thought, ooh, that's a little bit harsh. I need to tone it down a little bit, emphasize a little bit more of the good news than the bad. Because there is good news. But there is this existential crisis that some people go through when they realize, well, I'm going to die someday. You know, maybe it happens because I've, I've seen people die. I've seen children die. I've seen my brother died in my arms. Death is a real thing. In those moments of death, we can come very close to God. It can be a very intimate, really a very good thing. But, but you got to be careful because you need to understand that, that that isn't the problem. The problem isn't that we're going to die. You need to understand that the problem is we're already dead. That we haven't even experienced life yet. Without Christ, there is no life. Let me give you an example. You know, Genesis. You know, when, when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, if you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. There's an emphasis there. You will die. What happened when they ate? Did they die? Did they physically die? No. As a matter of fact, you'll find out if you look, they actually lived, uh, Adam lived 100, 930 years. Sounds like pretty good fruit to me. 930 years. He lived 930 years before he died. So what does it mean he died? You see, if we read that and we think, oh, he didn't die. I mean, wow, this sounds like some good fruit to me. I think I might as well have some of this fruit if I can live 900 years. Why not? You're missing the point. You see, what happened to Adam and Eve? They lost their relationship with God, their heavenly father. What happened when God called to them in that garden? They hid. They hid they had an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. 
and that completely turned around, and now they're afraid of him, and they hid from him. They were cursed, and they were thrown out of their home, and they died that moment. When they ate of that fruit, they died because they had no intimate knowledge of their sovereign God and their creator. They died. And you know what? We died right along with them. Do you know what it means to be intimate with a heavenly father? If you don't, you need to repent. Because you can. You can have an intimate relationship. And you see, David helps us to see that you can have an intimate relationship with your heavenly father You can do wonderful things. You can slay giants and then fall into the most horrible, terrible, ugly, mucky pit of sin, murder, adultery. But he can bring you up out of that horrible pit, out of that miry clay, And he can set your feet upon a rock and he can put a new song in your heart, even praise unto God. That's the testimony that Paul is reviewing with the people of Israel. And he brings it right to John the Baptist. Now, John's baptism is not the baptism that we practice. Because we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John didn't do that. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. But when we baptize, it is a public testimony of our union with Christ and our commitment to repentance and fellowship with Jesus Christ. I want you to ask yourself, is that the baptism that you've received? Have you been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Have you repented? Do you know the intimacy of Christ? Well, Paul goes on, and he talks about what is the basis of that intimacy. You see, because we we deserve death. We are dead because we deserve death. But we have life because Christ died for us. And because of that death, We're free. We're free. This, uh, Paul said it was for Abraham's family. Who's Abraham's family? Well, Paul later on in Romans argues that anyone who puts their faith in Christ is part of Abraham's family. So the, uh, so in order for Christ to to have been raised from the dead, he had to die. And he died a terrible, horrible death. And my friends, you, it's so, so critical that we all remember that death, that we remember that he died that death for you and for me and for us. And when he died, he was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. He chose us 
even before the creation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. How can we be holy and blameless? Because he took all the sin upon himself. I, I told you, I've done some bad things in my life. And I, I mean, I've done some bad things, which I'd rather not talk about. But I do know that Christ, Christ paid the price for every one of those acts. I'll tell you what, do you know what it's like to stand before a judge? And, and, and you don't know if you're going to, what, what this, you know that you're guilty. <laughs> you know you're guilty, and they know you're guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty. It's not a matter of being guilty or not guilty. It's a matter of what's the sentence going to be? Now imagine, now for me, if, if you were to take my life, you could take this book, make it about a font one, and, 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 and it, would, it would have all, all of those sins, you know, like, and, and the, the problem is it's not just the sins of omission, you know. Often when, when, when we get caught in something, our first response is, well, I didn't do anything, right? You ever, I'm a teacher, right? Every, you know, all these kids, the first thing they tell me is, I didn't do anything. And our response is, exactly. <laughs> you didn't do anything. You're, why are you here? You're supposed to be doing something. So half of our sins are sins of omission, right? Have you loved God today the way you're supposed to love him? Thou shalt love your God and put him before everything. Have you ever, I mean, have you, how many times have I looked with with greed, thou shalt not covet. How many times? Countless, as far as I know. And I stand before a judge, and I know I'm guilty. And literally, I literally have stood before judges, and I knew I was guilty. And I knew I was going to pay a price. And then along came a friend who paid a bond. He said, you can go free. Well, Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for you to go free. He's paid at the price. But then it doesn't end there. You need to understand that the gospel doesn't end with the death of Christ, but it goes on to life in the resurrection and the newness of life that we have with Christ. It's, it's so important that we understand that these are historical events. These things happen, that Christ rose from the dead. You know, um, I, I was um, probably, you know, I, I really love it when y'all applaud me. It's, uh, it's so nice. It's so gracious of y'all. But I really don't deserve it. But probably the greatest applause I have ever gotten in my life was when I was in Costa Rica. We were, we were walking down the street. It was all crowded because it was a celebration of their um, independence. So they're just all crowds all over. And and as I'm walking down the street, all of a sudden, I'm going right next to the National Cathedral. It's a beautiful big building with all these stairs. And all of a sudden, the crowd opened up in this half semicircle. And I'm standing in the middle of this half semicircle by the road, and everybody's applauding at me. I'm like, I'd been in the country three weeks. I could hardly speak, you know, and, and they're all applauding. And I'm like, I haven't done anything. And it's just nice of you, I haven't done anything yet. And, and as, as, as I'm, I'm confused, uh, this limousine drives up behind me, and the door, door opens up, and the president of the country steps out. <laughs> and I turn around, and he looks at me, I look at him, and his look was just classic. I think he thought I was some kind of assassin. 
You know, he just stops. He just stops and starts like, who is this guy? Everybody's clapping, and him and I are just staring each other down, and they're pro- the security service is probably like, oh, who is this guy? And everybody's like, who is this guy? And, and, and he finally, he just gets up his, and I'm like, what's going on? You know, like, and, and he just walks right by me. Literally as close as this podium is, to me, he just walks right by me. Oscar Adias was his name. He later on got the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in ending some wars in Central America. But he walked right by me, and all these people are clapping, and I'm like, and then, you know, the crowd, they go all, all into the, the cathedral. And the, the, my, my, the, the point is, is they weren't applauding me. <laughs> they were applauding the president of the, of, of the republic, right? And he deserved it. Well, you know, when we applaud in church, the, whether it's the people that have worshipped, that have done such a beautiful job today of worshiping, you all deserve an applause. You really did. But, but the point is, is that who's behind that applause. Who are we really applauding? Christ. The Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is with us. You know, that Holy Spirit was that Spirit that came to Christ and raised him up from the dead. That same Holy Spirit is with you and with me today if you've received Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You have God, the Holy Spirit, within you. Now, if that doesn't set you free, what would? You are free. We are free to worship our God. And it doesn't matter the circumstances. What else are we free from? What happens to Christians when they receive this kind of freedom. Well, just real quick, um, I want to uh, remind you of some of the saints who have gone before us who have these wonderful, incredible testimonies. But, but what, what all of their testimonies center on is how when we are freed in Christ, empowered through the Holy Spirit, we can do something that is totally impossible otherwise. We can forgive our enemies. We can forgive those that persecute us. We can forgive and we can love with a love that is way beyond our capacity and ability. It's the love of God itself. And you see that through people like, for instance, Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot, if you're not familiar with her, most of you probably are, but she went with her husband to Ecuador where uh, her husband was killed by uh, an indigenous tribe that they were trying to reach. Well, she stayed there in Ecuador with her her other friends. There were four men who were killed. She stayed with that tribe, and her and her daughter evangelized that tribe, and the man that killed her, her husband was a man that baptized her daughter. That's the power of the gospel. Another example is Helen Roosevelt. Helen Roosevelt was a medical doctor who, who dedicated her life to going to missions, and she went to the Congo and really struggled. She has this incredible biography and testimony of her struggles on the mission field, and, but she stu- hung in there, and, and then finally she was captured. There was a revolution, and she was captured, and she was beaten, she was tortured, she was raped. 
And, and the whole time she's asking, why, God, why? Why are you doing these horrible things? Why are you allowing these things to happen to me? Listen to her testimony. Go online. You can see and hear her talk about how God used those things to help her, to, be a, to, help her to witness to the love of Christ to other women who had been abused and mistreated. She was able to connect with them like she, had never, like she otherwise wouldn't have been able to. Listen to the testimony of, uh, this week I heard a testimony of a woman, Fan Tai Kim Fook. She was known as the Napalm Girl. Back in the Vietnam War, back in the 70s, she was nine years old, and there was a, a, a Napalm bomb that dropped on her village. I saw a documentary of this, and actually the airplane that flew and dropped the napalm were the exact airplanes I used to work on in the Air Force. And I don't know if you know what napalm is. Basically, it's gasoline and jelly. It's a jello of gasoline, and it just spreads fire. And if it gets on people, it just burns them and burns them. And her, bur- her, her clothes had been burned off, and you see her running. They, they, they took photographs of her running down the road, Yelling, it's too hot, too hot, too hot. Listen to her testimony. Um, the, the photo exposed the horrors of the Vietnam War uh, to the world, but it also left her bitter and full of hatred. Her whole back was burned, and there's just pain that she lived with for, for most of her life. But one day she picked up a Bible and converted to Christianity. So an interviewer asked her, you have such an optimistic view of how things can proceed in life after you went through so much. Are you ever angry? And you've got to watch this because you, you see her and you'd never imagine that she'd gone through such horrible things. And she said this, she said, right now, no. But before, yes, before I held the hatred for a while, and I, learned, and I learned to forgive. I learned to love my enemies. That is from learning. I'm not born with that. I was raised in a different religion. I was raised in Khao Dai, religion in Vietnam, but I was missing something. And I just wondered, where are you, God? But then finally I went to the library, and I read, uh, and I had read so many religious books, and among that, I read the Bible. Then I changed my attitude changed my behavior. I love my scar. You see, being freed, we are freed from our bitterness, in our anger, in our contempt, and we're filled with the love of Christ. And we become new creatures. And then Paul gives a warning. And I guess, you know, we have to give this warning. If you refuse this, if you refuse this offer of grace, this offer of mercy, there's judgment. There's judgment. But it doesn't end there. Finally, at verses 42 and 43, we see that Paul's message produces a whole lot of interest and a whole lot of new followers for Barnabas and Paul. And I guess this is 
for all of us, when the sermon is over, that's when the work begins. Let's pray.